thanks for tuning in to the Durban Memorial Baptist Church podcast. We're a group of sinners saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and here you will hear the Word of God. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a privilege to share the Word of God once again with the saints and faithful believers at Durban Memorial Baptist Church. In preparation for the message today, I found myself going down a, a rabbit hole I wouldn't typically explore. Hang out with me here for a second. I took a look at the top grossing horror movies released thus far in 2023. Okay. I told a couple of people as I was preparing for the message this week, I said, either this week we're going to be really edified or they're going to carry me out of the church. Okay. Now, this isn't a genre I typically go down. I, don't, I, I hadn't seen any of these movies on this list, but I did go through and read a, just a brief synopsis of thus far in 2023, the top 10 grossing horror movies. And I was reading through the plot lines and I found something to be really interesting. At least six, some I couldn't tell, but at least six of the 10 movies were directly driven and centered around uh, some sort of either demonic possession, uh, presence, or spiritual haunting of some kind. Now, this probably isn't too surprising if you've seen any of the commercials for these films, but when you read through these plot lines, that's a very common uh, uh, thing you see. But what confused me a little bit as I was diving into this research, looking at these things, is the popularity of this genre, this fixation with demonic spiritual influences in fictional movies, while also the general public holding to a denial of the reality of supernatural forces. So I find it very interesting that we get entertainment from these things. We want to be... uh, astonished by these kinds of stories, yet we deny they exist from a, a cultural perspective. Here, we're fine digesting graphic and decent imagery and be thrilled by some sort of spiritual spectacle while at the same time denying any existence beyond what's called materialism. Now, you've heard the word materialism. You might have heard someone say they're a very materialistic person. The definition you're thinking of is probably not the same definition that I'm using. Materialism in this form is the form of belief. It's a worldview which holds that matter is the fundamental substance in all of the universe, in all of nature. All things, including our mental states, our our consciousness, are a result of material interacting with other material things. Basically, atom A plus atom B equals reaction C, and everything in existence can be explained by that formula. That's a very simplistic way of breaking it down, but that's what I'm talking about. According to philosophical materialism, mind and consciousness, even our thoughts, our behaviors, are byproducts of material processes, such as the biochemistry of a human brain, the nervous system, all of those things without which they can't exist. Putting it very simply, materialism boils down into a scientific reaction between atoms. That, and everything can be explained by that. So that's the definition of materialism that I'm using here. And I, I don't think when I talk about us living in a materialistic culture, I'm not just talking about the world as a whole, the unbelieving world. Materialism has found its way into what would be defined by some as Christendom. 
into Christian faith. Bear with me here. I was looking at a study this week, and it was a little bit dated, coming from 2009, but it was the most recent I could find on the topic here. And self-identified Christians, nearly 60% agreed Satan is not a living being, but is simply a symbol of evil. Okay? Many Christians deny the existence of spiritual forces beyond our comprehension, beyond what we can see in interactions. We can understand when someone does something good or does something bad, but angels being cast out of heaven, throwing fiery darts, wrestling and scheming against us, being chained in the depths of the earth, all that sounds like some fairy tale to a materialistic worldview. This is given even more support In Christendom, where Satan is often viewed as a metaphor and the Bible just one big allegory, this is given more evidence when the same survey I just mentioned showed that the same 60%-ish, it was like 59% if we want to be technical, showed these self-identified Christians believe the Holy Spirit is a symbol of God's power or presence, but is not a living entity. Same, Same research. Church, I'm going to be pretty blunt here for a second. So, like I said, you'll either be edified or carry me out. Denial of the third person of the triune God is heresy. American cultural Christianity that denies the existence of anything beyond the material world is incongruent with God's word. I was mentioning those darts, those schemes, all that. That comes straight from Scripture. Allow me to read for you Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 through 20. We'll have it there if you want to look. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly forces. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. We sung about that this morning, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes on your feet, having put on the readiness uh, uh, given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances. Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now, that is a large section of scripture. It deserves deeper exposition. Uh, but for our time this morning, I'm just going to pull out a couple of nuggets, okay? Later on down the road, hopefully we'll give that the, the exposition it deserves to really dive in there. But a few bullet points, if you would, from this section. Number one, in verse 18, you see praying in the spirit. That is not referring to an impersonal force, but a capital S proper noun, praying in the Spirit, the third person of the triune God, promised and given to all who believe in Christ as Lord. The helper that Jesus promised is not some impersonal force. It is referred to as a specific entity. Second person of the triune God, the Spirit. So then you also see in there the devil, the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the forces of evil in the unseen heavenly places. 
They're not presented there as simply a symbol for the bad things that happen in mankind. They're presented as real enemies and entities that followers of the Lord are combating whether we recognize it or not. Then you see the whole armor of God. Though it may not be a material suit of chain mail we are to wear each day, it is real, literal, and spiritual adornment given to believers by the grace of God for this battle that we are in, referred to in this passage. And then number four, I wholeheartedly believe that our American materialistic worldview is very well one of those verse 11 schemes of the devil talked about there. These literal schemes. If Satan can convince a people that everything in existence is simply the byproduct of natural processes, then we can come to believe we can explain everything on our own. We can manipulate everything for our own purposes. We can be the little G God over creation. In short, a materialistic worldview says we don't need God. But the reality presented to us in Ephesians chapter 6 and all throughout Scripture for that matter is that there is more to existence than the interactions of atoms. God is a God of order. We can see a, a design throughout all of creation. I am not denying scientific processes by any, uh, by any state of anything that I'm saying here. God is a God of order. While God is a God of order that created matter to generally act in these predictable ways, we have seen for just the last couple of weeks, Jesus Christ has sovereignty over matter, sovereignty over creation. He is better and bigger than those things. Doesn't follow those same rules. He is those rules. You read elsewhere in scripture. Today, we're going to be walking through the final section of Matthew chapter 8. We're going to see a story of possession. And I wanted to have this introduction because I want us to understand that when we read this section of Matthew chapter 8, this biography, this gospel given to us by Matthew, this is a real story of a real instance of real demonic influence. This isn't an allegory. This is an occurrence unexplainable in the materialistic worldview. Terrifying as it may be. It is not the musings of some depraved and depressed fiction writer that fills our TV screens. This is a presentation of realities, of spiritual forces and demonic possession, oppression. Church, it's real. And it might sound unsettling, but as we'll see today, Christ is king. Look at me in verses 28 through 31. When he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadinerines, Two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come to, here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the pigs begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. So, in these verses, we are given a historical account, a real account of what real possession looks like. We're also going to see some of the, uh, you could call them hallmarks of demonic activity. 
It's important to note some of this is going to be descriptive of a specific encounter while other parts are going to be prescriptive of demonic influence in general. So let's walk through this. And we'll first look at what is descriptive of what is specifically happening here. This takes place in the countryside there off the Sea of Galilee. And this is on the outskirts of a coastal community to the northeast part of Galilee uh, uh, there. And two men both afflicted with demons, come out of the tomb and they rush in front of Jesus. And these tombs were dug out chambers in the mountainside and they were used to prepare and keep the bodies of the dead. According to the Levitical law, these places were unclean places. These were not places that regular people hung out. Okay, The physicians of that day would have described hanging out in the tombs in that area as a symptom of madness. I think the same might be said today. Keep telling Amber, stop hanging out. I'm just kidding. This was not a regular place to be. These demoniacs would have taken to the tombs for one of two reasons. Either they were cast out from society who didn't know what to do with them. They were cast out to a place where common people wouldn't regularly go. Or if these possessed men were Jewish men, which we are not given that detail in the text, but if they were, it's possible that the demonic influence within them wished to further their defilement and their humiliation by taking them to a place that is unclean for a Jewish person to be. Either way, these men were marked as outcasts from the rest of their society. Matthew describes these men as so fierce no one could pass by them. There's a parallel passage to this in Mark chapter 5, and it focuses on the, uh, uh, the stronger of the two and shares that no one could bind him, not even with a chain. He broke shackles into pieces, this man did. Physically strengthened, yet spiritually and mentally disturbed. This man would cut himself with stones And he would rant and rave with things uh, unintelligible by those around him. It's clear this afflicted group was a band of chaos everywhere they went. They avoided or were avoided, excuse me, by the masses. And it's also clear that their afflictions were not explainable by natural processes. That man shouldn't have been strong enough to break those chains. These men were possessed. Though we only think about such things in the context of movies, this is not a movie. This is a historical occurrence of a literal possession. So now we've seen kind of the particulars into what's happening in this situation. What can we infer as uh, prescriptive, as, as kind of a hallmark of evil or demonic influence here? Well, first, we see a connection between evil and death. These afflicted men preferred the company of the dead to that of the living. Darkness was deep upon them. They were entangled with death and separation from God. First John chapter 1 verse 7 says, God's people are to walk in the light as he is in the light. We are to have fellowship with one another, living life together, not finding comfort alone in the darkness out in the tombs. Then we see not just a desire for darkness, we see a denial of Christ. They say, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? That's saying, why are you here? Why are you bothering us? We want nothing to do with you, Son of God. 
In Mark, it says that the possessed man bows before Jesus. Why? Why does he bow before Jesus? It's because these demons uh, possessing the men are fallen angels who understand. They have known well the triune God from the onset of creation. They know this is the eternal Son of God. They know this is Jesus Christ before them. They have well known that from the onset of their creation. Though they have never seen him in human form, they instantly recognize Jesus as the second person of the triune God. And as spirits, they recognize his spirit, if you would. They intuitively knew they were standing in the presence of the Son of God. And in this realization, we realize a couple of quick little side notes that we got to note. They know who Jesus is. They have good theology. They know exactly who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. They recognize his divinity. They know they must bow before him in the Mark passage there. They have good theology. They also have good eschatology. They say, depart from us. Uh, what, what is the words there in, in verse uh, uh, 29? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They recognize a time is coming when the demons will be permanently cast into the lake of fire. They recognize the eschatological end of their existence. Revelation hadn't even been written yet, but they know what's coming. They know judgment is coming. What does this mean for us? It means that the right knowledge is not a substitute for adoring faith. Even the demons see Christ for who he is, yet they still deny his presence. They shun his presence. Demonic activity thrives on darkness away from light, away from the light of the world. In this text this morning, the demons showing they're not omniscient. They say, Jesus, if you're going to cast us out, cast us into those pigs over there. The unclean spirits ask to be sent into a herd of unclean animals. We're not given the specific reason in the text why they wanted to request uh, to be sent into the pigs there. But we do know that this ends in an act of violent destruction that hurts the community in the area. In just this short interaction, we can see a pattern of things accompanying demonic activity in the world. There's a clear correlation between evil and death. There's a shunning of Christ, the denial of Christ. Even if there is a correct understanding of who he is, there's rejection. And there's corresponding darkness and destruction. We can see that clearly in the text. Those things happen. Those things happen today. Those things are happening around the world. Similar hauntings to the scene that we have read thus far do happen. And this is the part where everybody looks at me and they say, Brad, you're crazy. If you want to turn off, if you're watching on Facebook and scroll back through the rest of the feed there. Hear me out. I know what this sounds like. I know we live in a materialistic society. 
that claims the ability to figure out and pinpoint the, the scientific explanation to every single occurrence. But I cannot in good faith tell you that there are no such things as demonic activity. When we see it in the examples of the Gospels, we see warnings about it in the epistles and the recorded accounts throughout the centuries that are marked by death and darkness and rejection of Jesus Christ. I cannot tell you those things are not real when all of the evidence points elsewhere. You might say, well, Pastor Brad, I ain't never seen no possession that wasn't on TV. Have you? I'd respond, no, I haven't. I've read about it. Read about it right here. Also, half of those haunting movies that you just love to watch in October claim to be based on real events. Just because we haven't witnessed something doesn't mean it has not occurred. When you read through the Bible, you'll see a variety of times in which demons are cast out. But there's something interesting that you, you can find in these. We don't ever see an account of a demonic possession in the city of Jerusalem. Why is that so? Well, there's a variety of reasons there, but one commenter noted that throughout history, including in modern times, that particular aspect of Satan's activity, that possession, seems to appear more commonly in rural and unsophisticated urban society. It's also more common where animistic religions and its accompanying fear and worship of evil spirits are strong. Just because the play isn't being played here doesn't mean it's not happening elsewhere. These things are real. They are not something to take lightly. We wouldn't be told to put on the full armor of God if there was nothing to defend against. Through demonic forces, men are robbed of their self-control. They are filled with fear and with utterances. They are removed from the comforts of their homes and their friends. They are outcast. Society doesn't know what to do and they ostracize the afflicted. They restrain and isolate, but they are unable to change and at this point, y'all, it's a deeply unsettling story. I hope you're not sitting there thinking like, man, this is cool. It's unsettling. It should be. But then read with me verse 32. He said to them, go. So they came out and they went into the pigs and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The thought of demonic possession, especially when we are surrounded by a science-driven materialistic culture is deeply unsettling. But the great hope that all believers can have is that Jesus, that same Jesus who healed the six, Jesus, the same Jesus who calmed the sea, Jesus, the supreme over, na nat over nature, that same Jesus is supreme over the supernatural. There is no spiritual force, no cosmic entity, no goblin, goon, or ghost that does not bend to the ultimate will of Jesus Christ. It took but a word for Jesus Christ to command these afflicted spirits. Just as he healed with but a word just a few stories before this earlier in the chapter, he now simply states, go and the demons obey. The same demons that had given supernatural strength to these men so that no man could bind them, so that the chains wouldn't hold, so that no one could pass, were helpless but to obey the command of Christ. 
Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 tells us that Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. No word of God shall be void of power. The demons obey. They go into the pigs. We see that here in the text here. The whole herd plunges from the hillside into the waters where they drown. We don't know what happens to the demons from there. We don't, we don't see what is the final state, if you would. But we see that this is an act full of malice, a hatred of God's creation, and a love of mischief by the demons. Each of these being congruent with the schemes of Satan. Charles Spurgeon noted something interesting in the behavior of the pigs. He said the swine preferred death to devilry. And if men were not worse than swine, they would be of the same opinion. The sad reality is many in mankind enjoy a tryst with the devil. The immediate pleasures of licentious behavior is too alluring to pass up, to not go all in on. If only we would see how bad evil really is. If only we would understand the darkness of sin. If only we would be more enamored with the light of God's righteousness than with the false cover of darkness. We see in this encounter, Christ is better Christ is stronger. We might have more questions about how things played out here, but there is no question of Jesus's might. From what we see in the text, we don't know why Jesus allowed the demons to go into the pigs. There's a variety of guesses. If you want to give uh, some some study to this, if the owners of the pigs were Jews, it may have been that Jesus was rebuking them for participating in an unclean trade. If they were Gentiles, it may have been to show the danger of the evil spirits around them and not doing something about it sooner. It may have been to proclaim his power over creation in a way that shows he is uh, that, that, that material means mean nothing to eternal means. I can't give you a definite answer as to why this happened the exact way that it did. But what we can clearly see and what I can say emphatically this morning, Jesus is sovereign. They bow to his command. While we're taking this morning to recognize the existence of demonic entities, cosmic powers over the present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil and unseen heavenly realms, We need to understand Christ is king. He is Lord of all. One day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Even the demons recognize this. So while we are recognizing the existence of these forces, the unsettling realization that it may be, we need not be afraid. We read in Psalm 118, it says, The Lord is on my side. What can man do to me? I believe that through this text this morning, we can be confident to add to that. Christ is on my side. What can any demon do to me? Christ is king over all the powers. Let's see how the community reacted to all of this. There are crazy men in the cemetery. Problem has been fixed. You'd think everything would be good now, right? Well, look at verses 33 through 34. The herdsmen fled and going into the city, they were told everything, especially what happened to the demon possessed men. Behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. How do we respond 
to the power of Jesus. I can tell you this, the herdsmen, those were the ones watching the pigs there. Those guys were terrified. They were terrified. That word fled carries with it a deeper connotation of uh, of fleeing in a sense of escape or like seeking safety. (laughs) Their world had been shattered. They were terrified of the situation. So when they fled to the city, they were like, we got to get out of Dodge here. They run into the city. They tell everyone what's happened. They've seen some stuff and didn't know what to do. Now, I can only imagine the reaction of the people back in the city. They would have been well familiar with the two men in the tomb. It wasn't a surprise to them that crazy folk lived out there. They would have been interested in seeing if they had been cured. But the idea of this man from nowhere coming to cleanse these men and then the pigs jumping off a cliff, that would have sounded insane to these folks. What do they do? Well, they go out and investigate. (laughs) They say, let's go see what happens. They run to the scene where everything happened. Matthew writes, all the city came to meet Jesus. They want to confirm what happened and confirm they did. They see the evidence of the pigs there on the beach. They see the men acting normally, presumably, and they see Jesus. And we need to note their response when they see Jesus. They see the man who cleansed these two souls that have been pestering the community for some time. They know he did it. And they beg him to leave. They say, would you get out of here? This is one of the saddest verses in all of scripture. These villagers were either more concerned with the death of a few pigs than they were with the deliverance of two human souls crafted in the image of God, or perhaps like the scribes and Pharisees later, they were wrongly convinced that he who knew no sin was evil. This is so sad because this entire village did not see Christ for the good he is. The prophet Isaiah would write, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That's exactly what we're seeing happen in this town. The sad truth we're seeing played out in this text is that in our fallen, sin-fueled state, mankind feels more at home with the demons than with the Christ who has the power to cast them out. Jesus performs an undeniable miracle in their midst, one of many as we've walked through this chapter, and we'll see many more as we continue through chapter 9 after this. But the people rejected him. The question I want to have as we head towards our conclusion this morning is this, how do you respond to the power of Jesus? Do you respond with apathy? As we read this story, it just seems like another one of those fairy tales. Do you respond with recoil? How could he let those pigs die? Or do you respond with fear that the man has power over demons? He surely must be one himself. Or do you respond with disdain as the demons recoiled in his presence? Or do you see the great authority and majesty in Christ the King? Do you respond with a humble, 
I am weak. I'm much weaker than that. Thou art strong. Do you respond? I'll say yes, Lord, yes, to your will and to your way. Do you respond to the power of Jesus? We all have a response. The question is, what is yours? Scripture tells us the only right response is to repent and believe in Jesus as Lord. Do you believe today? Do you believe? Have you been so-called putting off belief in Jesus? One pastor made a frightening comment. He said, tell Christ to leave you alone and he will. And if you tell him enough, there will come a time when the opportunity for repentance will be gone. If you have not already done so, turn to Christ for salvation. Come to Christ for healing. If he's speaking to you, you must respond for it may be the last time. In just a moment, we're going to get to this in just a second, but we're going to have a time of response. If you have been putting off belief in Christ, adoring him for the king he is, the sovereign he is, the worthy to be served that he is, I hope today is the day the Holy Spirit convicts you and says, no more. I see Christ is king over sickness. I see Christ is king over, over the natural world, over creation, and he is also king over the supernatural. He is worthy be served. I would love to talk to you more about that. Come forward during the hymn of response. But before we conclude, I just want to make one more note here on the greatness of Christ, the worthiness of Christ to be served. Today, you may have had your eyes open to the supernatural realities around us. You might even start to believe there are more things going on than a materialistic world can define. But let it be stated again, Christ is king. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is, in, is, is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. There's some truths that we should all understand today. Yes, Satan schemes. Yes, there are demonic influences and possessions and presences in the world. Satan even tried to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. That account's given to you back in Matthew chapter 4 if you want to look at it later. But in those temptations, Jesus never once bended to Satan. In our text today, in dealing with the demons, and if you want to go further to the end of Matthew with the resurrection from the grave, we see Jesus demonstrate his power to overcome and subdue Satan. Not only would Christ not bend to Satan in the wilderness, but Satan is made to bend to Christ. Even the demons believe Christ is king. He is worthy to be served. What is your response to Christ the King? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to be in your word, Lord. I pray that we were true to your word, that we wouldn't try to add things that are for our entertainment value or for any sort of false emotional disturbances or challenges, whatever it may be, Lord. But may we just see the glorious truth that is in your word. We call it glorious not because the darkness of spiritual entities are real, but that Christ is king over them. And that same Christ to whom all of creation obeys lived and died and rose again 
So that he who knew no sin would be sin, and in him all who believe in him might become the righteousness of God. Lord, I pray that we would see Christ as king, worthy to be served, and that we would seek to live our lives for your glory in the light. We wouldn't be fooled by the schemes of Satan. We would understand you have a plan, a purpose, and you have allowed us to be a part of it. May we proclaim Christ as king today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Durban Memorial Baptist Church podcast. If you want to find out more about our church, you can check out www.durbanchurch.org. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can give us a call or text to 859-813-0369. Also, you can shoot us an email at brad at Have a wonderful day and God bless.